Now, can I ask you uh, please to turn in your Bibles to the passage we read together earlier in uh, Joshua uh, chapter 3. To those whose journey through life seems like an obstacle course, one barrier after another, Johnny Erickson writes these words, Take those road hazards, the potholes, the ruts, the detours, and all the rest as evidence that you are on the right route. I wonder, was Israel tempted to question that? Were they aware of Joni Erickson's words? Were they tempted to question that as they stood on the threshold of the promised land. They faced a towering, raging torrent of water, a humanly insurmountable barrier. Picture the scene, if you will. Uh, on one slope, halfway up the slope, the town of Jericho with a grandstand view of what was about to take place lower down. And on the other slope, we have the approaching juggernaut of Israel brought to an abrupt halt. <coughs> and, and we wait, before this barrier, we wait for the principal performer of our drama, the Lord God Almighty whose remarkable dismantling of the barrier that uh, stood in the way of Israel entering into the land of promise, we see that as formative, not only in Israel's development then, but surely in the development and growth of God's people uh, today. If you're looking for some sort of roadmap, uh, I've got three points. Well, I'm a minister. I'm supposed to have three points uh, concerning this barrier. The first is uh, I want to suggest to you that it achieves a, a number of outcomes or objectives. Secondly, it involves particular and specific preparation. And thirdly, it calls for a token of remembrance. Well, the first of these, it achieves a number of outcomes. Firstly, this barrier uh, that stood before them was a test of Israel's faith. God, you see, could have led Israel into the land of Canaan by a completely different route, but didn't. He could have brought them to the River Jordan uh, when it was fairly shallow and affordable, but didn't. He brought them uh, to the Jordan in time of spate. Why? Well, this wasn't Israel's first opportunity to enter Canaan. Numbers 13 uh, tells us that 40 years previously, Israel had spurned the report that was brought to them by Joshua and Caleb and they refused to advance into the land of promise. 
Instead, they were swayed by the remaining ten spies who were big theatres who argued that the invasion of Canaan will never succeed. Their warriors are too great. There are giants in the land. And what happened? Well, unbelief triumphed. Fear eroded Israel's confidence in God. Israel said, we don't trust God to keep his covenant and promises towards us. Instead, we choose to place our trust in human intelligence, which tells us the obstacles ahead are insurmountable. And the price of their failure was 40 years wandering around in the wilderness. Now, uh, students that I know who failed their exams are greatly relieved when they discover that there is a reset available uh, to them. Well, Israel uh, brought to the River Jordan in this uh, state of torrent, uh, God had brought them to an exam room. They were getting a reset. They were getting an opportunity to trust him to, to dismantle the barrier that prevented their access into the land of promise. They were having an, a renewed opportunity to put past failure behind them and to trust in God. So it was a test of Israel's faith. Secondly, the dismantling of the Jordan barrier was intended to develop Israel's confidence in their leader. Verse 7 of chapter 3, God says to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel. Moses, now dead, had led Israel for 40 years. Could Joshua, his replacement, cut the, cut the mustard as a, as a leader of this nation going into uh, uh, the conflict that awaited them in Canaan? There are defining moments in the lives of all of God's leaders. And the miraculous parting of the Jordan would, if you like, be God's seal, his divine imprimatur, that this is my man to lead you into the land of promise. Just as, I suppose, David's defeat of Goliath was God's seal uh, upon David as the, as the leader, the next leader that would lead uh, his people uh, Israel. New and untested leadership in the church has often caused people to complain, oh, nobody will ever be as good as the last man. We'll never have anybody like him. Uh, I've, I've heard that. I'm sure you wouldn't say that in your vacant situation. Uh, but, but it is said. Well, you can be confident that God will find the means of setting his seal upon the one he calls to lead you. And that's what God is doing here. 
Thirdly, dismantling of this barrier would strengthen Israel's assurance that God was actually with them. Verse 10, this is how you will know that the Lord is among you to drive out the Canaanites. When he deals with this barrier, this is how you will know. After 40 years of wilderness wandering, I wonder were some still asking, have the promises of God lost their momentum? Is he still mighty to save? Is he really? Is God really unwavering in his commitment towards us? You see, the past faithlessness of God's people is often the very ammunition that Satan employs to cause us to question God's unwavering commitment towards us in the here and now. And we shall see uh, God's remarkable activity at the Jordan would be of seminal importance in strengthening this people's assurance that God is indeed with them. Uh, fourthly, the display at the Jordan would impress upon an unbelieving world God's sovereign power and rightful majesty. I don't intend to develop that idea this morning, uh, but it's there in chapter 4 and verse 24. So much then for uh, the outcomes of uh, this barrier and its uh, dismantling. Secondly, notice that the barriers dismantling uh, involved specific preparation on the part of Israel. Faced with the Jordan barrier, what preparation might you expect to take place? How are they going to get across the river? Oh, uh, maybe build a Bailey Bridge and stretch it across so that the whole of Israel could pass over the bridge, or maybe send them up and down the riverbanks looking for some uh, buoyancy aids that will get them across. None of that. Significantly, all of the preparation was designed to fix their attention on God alone. He is the dismantler of barriers. First, verse 5, notice. They're told to consecrate themselves. Interestingly, whenever Israel is told to consecrate themselves, the context is always that of God's revelation of himself, God's self-disclosure. And the Jordan spectacle would be no different. Now, the... Ritual, external, ceremonial cleansing of consecration, in actual fact, pointed to an internal reality. For the real barrier, you see, that stood between Israel and her enjoyment of the blessing of God in the land of promise, the real barrier, was sinful unbelief and disobedience. Something to be 
confessed and repented of, just as their hopelessness and helplessness was to be acknowledged before an insurmountable barrier. Otherwise, uh, or in other words, they needed their hearts to be prepared. Heart preparation comes before divine revelation. That's the order. Heart preparation first. Otherwise, they would witness God's spectacular work at the Jordan, but would fail to understand its implication and so gain spiritual benefit from it. Remember, in Jesus' day, many witnessed his miracles, but they failed to understand their meaning. Prepared hearts precede revelation. Let me just apply this in, in a small way. Two people listen to the same sermon and at the close, one turns and says to the other, you know, today has been a day when God has graciously met with me. Uh, he's spoken directly into my situation. He has strengthened and comforted me. And the other turns and looks at him and says, well, that sermon did absolutely nothing for me. Only the first person has brought a prepared heart to church. And it was to him that God revealed himself through his word. Not so the second person. It begs the question of us all this morning, how prepared is your heart? How prepared is my heart? Preparation precedes revelation. Secondly, the priests were told to carry the ark towards the Jordan. Notice the Ark of the Covenant is actually mentioned 17 times in 22 verses. Why? For it is the major player in this drama. It symbolized the presence of God, the throne of God. It contained the word of God, the commandments of God. And Israel would observe three things, at least, as they followed down the slope some half a mile behind the priests carrying the ark, making their way towards the river. First, they would become aware of the fact that the supernatural pillar of cloud was no longer leading them. It had done for 40 years in the wilderness. Exodus 40, 38 tells us day after day after day, the pillar was there to lead and to guide. That form of guidance now terminated, replaced by the ark that leads them across into the land of promise. So following it, meant following what it contained, God's word, God's commandments. Following God meant obeying him and becoming increasingly the people of the book. It's not uncommon for young Christians to, to look to God for supernatural guidance. Give me a sign, Lord, give me a sign. Uh, 
But that doesn't develop spiritual maturity, does it? Oh, God may, in his mercy, occasionally provide such signs, but normative guidance involves deepening our relationship with the guide. And that only happens as we become increasingly immersed in his word. It's as our minds become captive to the word of God and indeed as they become conformed to his teaching. That when we approach barriers, we see beyond the barrier, we see above the barrier, to the God who dismantles them. So knowing God is of vital importance in addressing the barriers and obstacles in our lives. Secondly, Israel watched the priests approach the river. Instead of stopping at its edge and waiting for the waters to part, they took God at his word, notice, and they marched right in. The river only parted when their feet touched the water. Chapter 3, verse 16. Clearly, real faith doesn't wait to commit itself to what it can see or process at a sensual level. The priests weren't influenced by a a seeing-is-believing mentality, which uh, influences so many people today. And if Israel, think about it, if Israel was to possess the promised land by faith, it was vitally important for them to build this lesson into their spiritual DNA. The, The writer to the Hebrews tells us that it was by faith that the walls of Jericho fell down. You see, the Jordan tutorial would still have been fresh in their minds as they marched around the walls of Jericho. God said, they'll fall down. God said, we believe God, we believe God. He will dismantle the barrier, just as he did at the Jordan. He will dismantle the barrier. Genuine faith, pardon me, is both uh, obedient and expectant in response to the promises of God. Thirdly, and I think of great significance, Israel watched the priests park the ark halfway across the Jordan and keep it there until all had crossed over. Now, the natural response, surely, to the towering heap of water held back further up the river would have been to stampede across. Let's get across as quickly as we can. But the presence of the ark in the middle of the Jordan was God's way of saying, I place myself between the threat of danger and my people's safety. I place myself between the threat of danger and my people's safety. Can you begin to imagine the the immeasurable comfort and strong reassurance that that would minister to Israel as they travelled? The psalmist expresses a similar thought 
unfortunately, this is one of the verses that was left out of Psalm 23 that we sung earlier, when he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, how could he sit down and enjoy a meal knowing that he was in his enemy's sights? Very easily. Middle Eastern hospitality requires the host to take upon himself uh, the responsibility for his guest's safety. And so imagine then the psalmist in the tent enjoying the meal, the host at the doorway uh, of the tent, saying to any threatening menace, if you want him, then you have to deal with me first. You need to get past me. And in a sense, that's what God says. That's what God says to any potential threat. If you plan ultimate harm for my children, then you need to deal with me first. You need to get past me first. Thirdly, finally, this uh, dismantling of the barrier it called for a token of remembrance. The bulk of the text in chapter 4 from verse 2 right up to 24 uh, is given to the construction of this remembrance uh, monument made of 12 stones taken from uh, the Jordan River bed. This cairn was to be a reminder uh, of God's great act of deliverance and used as a teaching aid for future generations. Chapter 4 and uh, verse 21. When your children ask, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. The redeemed people were constantly exhorted to remember God's mighty acts of deliverance. We see this back in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Remember both God's deliverance and provision. Remember, 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 remember. That was the pattern. Yet God's complaint against Israel in the years that lay ahead was they have forgotten the Lord their God, Jeremiah uh, 33 and 21. And again, more uh, particularly Psalm 78 and 11. They forgot his works and the wonders he had shown them. They've forgotten all that God had done. Forgetfulness has been called one of the greatest enemies of faith. <coughs> Forgetfulness. One of the greatest enemies of faith. What then might we expect this cairn, 12 stones, this cairn to teach Israel then and the people of God today. Three things. Uh, first, humanly insurmountable barriers are not insurmountable to God. As a child, I sang, God, any rivers you think are uncrossable. Uh, God, any mountains you can't tunnel through. God specializes in things thought impossible. And he can do what no others can do. From the smiles of some of you, you've sung that chorus as well. And that includes dismantling the greatest barrier of all, which separates 
man from God, our sin. And those who try to dismantle this barrier by offering God their moral and religious best are doomed to failure, are they not? And it was when confronted with this inescapable reality after the meeting of Jesus and the rich young ruler that the disciples asked, who then can be saved? You know, if he, uh, by his best efforts, and they were pretty good, uh, has no hope, uh, who can be saved? And you'll remember the reply that Jesus gave. He said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. The sin barrier could only be dismantled by the death of Christ upon the cross. And it was Jesus who held back the torrent of God's righteous judgment. It was he who on the cross absorbed the, the deluge of punishment that should have flowed in our direction and engulfed us. It is he alone who provides safe passage into God's kingdom. I wonder if there is anyone here this morning who hasn't yet made that crossing, hasn't yet put their trust in Christ, hasn't yet jumped into the wheelbarrow, if you like. Well, let me encourage you to do so today if you've not already done so. But there is a further application for believers. Believers who face different barriers which prevent them from progressing into the fullness of God's blessing. For some it might be a struggle with a besetting sin or the pressures in the workplace or uh, pressures from family. The list is endless. Then be encouraged by the spiritual logic of Paul that we find in Romans 8 and 32 where he says, He that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Do you see the logic? Paul is arguing from the greater to the lesser. He's saying, if God in Christ has dismantled the sin barrier for you, will he withhold from you any lesser thing that would prevent your growth and development in your faith? Surely not. Secondly, the memorial cairn reminds us of God's covenant faithfulness. He had kept his covenant promise, made initially to Abraham, but repeatedly in recent years to Israel, that he would bring them into the land of promise, into the land flowing with milk and honey. Can God be trusted to keep his word? Well, his faithfulness is guaranteed because it is essential to his being. It is essential to his being. Satan whispers, do you think God really means what he says? Can he be trusted? In Genesis 15, we find Abraham uh, struggling to 
to grasp, to lay hold of, to rely upon the promise, the covenant promise of God. And the visual aid that God gives Abraham in Genesis 15 uh, complements the one that we have, the picture of the ark in the middle of the Jordan. Because in Genesis 15, God, symbolized by a smoking brazier and a blazing torch, passes between a path of animals that have been killed and separated into two, uh, one part on either side of the path. So that in response to the question, can I be trusted to keep my promise to you, Abraham? God is replying, just as these animals, have been torn apart, so may I press the self-destruct button on the Godhead if I fail to keep my word of promise, if I prove myself to be faithless. Men may become unfaithful out of fear, Weakness, loss of interest, pressurized by external pressures and influences. But none of these forces can ever render God unfaithful. What a tremendous comfort that affords. And thirdly, the cairn should remind us that faith is an appropriating grace. While God was clearly the principal performer at the River Jordan, Israel had a walk-on, or more accurately, a walk-across role to play. They had to put their faith in God's provision. Saving faith in Scripture is never passive. It's always active, stretching out, making God's offer our own. If someone here this morning is not yet a Christian, it's not enough to believe that Jesus' death dismantles barriers. You must travel across that bridge that Christ's death has secured. It is active faith that makes the blessing of God our own. And having crossed the Jordan by faith, the cairn pointed not only to a past event, but forward. How were Israel to enjoy God's blessing in the future? By keeping in step with the entry point into blessing. As you began, that is by faith, so continue on your pilgrimage, on your journey. Sadly, much of Israel's future life was marked by failure. Instead of exercising faith in God, they exercised faith in their own performance or in the performance of others. And if we're tempted to think, well, no New Testament church would surely behave in that way. Listen to what Paul says to the church of Galatia, Galatians 3, verse 1 following. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Let me ask you this. 
Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun with the Spirit, are you now ending with the flesh? They began by faith. They welcomed Jesus as Savior by faith. But then they became persuaded by others that God's blessing was something they must earn. I wonder if we need to be reminded that the appropriating faith that initially made Christ our own is the very same faith that we need to continue to employ to experience the rich and the fulsome blessing of God in our lives. Receiving Christ, not only the entry point to blessing, but the means by which we come to grow and develop as believers. When uh, the Puritan John Flavel wrote, man's extremities are God's opportunities. I'm not sure that he necessarily had this passage in mind, but the maxim still applies. As we acknowledge our own helplessness, and step out in obedient faith in the God who dismantles barriers, be they rivers or walls uh, or whatever difficulty it may be. When we step out in faith believing that God is the great dismantler barrier, God who is faithful to his word of promise, is a God who can be trusted with our future pilgrimage, leading, guiding, providing all that we need. Let's pray.